All right. Well, I'm happy you guys are here. If you are new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and we are today actually wrapping up a series that we've been involved in for the past several months through the book of Revelation. We've got two more chapters to go. Uh, today is the second to last message. Next week, we're going to be totally done uh, with the entire book of Revelation. Uh, hopefully, it's been an encouragement to you guys. It's been an encouragement to me, studying for it, preparing for it, being ready for it. Uh, hopefully, it has uh, helped you and aided you in giving you guys fuel to worship Jesus, to see him as a big God. That's what I hope and pray for. Um, what we're going to do right now is I would encourage you guys to open up in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, is where we're going to be at right now, chapter 21. And uh, what I want to do before we jump in, I want to read all of chapter 21, and then really the first five verses of 22, and uh, I want to just read it in one consecutive reading, because I think there's a lot of really important stuff that it's going to point out to us. If you guys don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. Please feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, please keep it. We want you all to have a Bible. And uh, so one of the things that I want to do is we read this, um, I want for you guys to use a sanctified imagination, all right? And here's what I mean. I think over the past, like maybe 15 to 25 years, uh, the Christian church, at least in westernized America, has sort of reacted to a lot of new age thinking that's kind of focused on a type of paganism or a lot of meditation or imaging or visualization, things of that nature, which definitely may have some roots in paganism. But I think what's end up happening is a lot of Christians have sort of overreacted to that and thought, we can't use our imagination for anything. We, we just can't imagine things. We can't vision things and understand things as they're written in the Bible. And what I'm trying to say is that when we read through this, I want you to at least have a sanctified imagination, to listen to the, uh, the words that come off of the pages, uh, listen to the sounds that are described, the voices that are talked about, the colors of the gemstones that are going to be described in here. And basically, in a nutshell, before we jump in, uh, we're going to read about a period of time that has not yet happened, that's in the future, that John describes as a new heavens, a new earth, a new church, or a new creation, a people, uh, a, a brand new planet, a brand new city, a new Jerusalem that's going to be coming down from heaven, from God. Everything will be made new. This really is uh, the paradise or the idea or the picture of heaven that really all of us, all of us, to some degree, some way, shape, or form, we all long for in our hearts. Before we begin to read, what I want to do is I want to pray and just ask God to help us to understand this, to see this, that these would not just be mere words on a page, but that these really would be viewed as the words of God, as written down by a faithful pastor by the name of John, the beloved, one of Jesus' good, close friends, who faithfully had written down all that he had seen, preserved it, so that we can now read it here today, 2,000 years later, so that we can have some sort of glimpse as to what things will be like one day. So let's pray, and then we'll read through this, and then we'll begin to unpackage uh, chapter 21 and try to understand this big concept, this big idea of what it means to have all things be made new. So let's pray. Father, we ask you right now that Lord, in our culture, we just, we confess that we are a culture of people that are fascinated with newness. We love things that are new. We hate things that are broken down, that get old, even if it's a couple weeks old. And Father, we recognize in a lot of ways it's because I think we're made in the image of Christ. We're made to look to you, who is always self-new. You're always new. You never grow old. God, you're beautiful, you're glorious. In a lot of ways, our desire to always have something that is full of beauty and glory is, again, distant echo of something that had gone horribly wrong from the garden. How sin has entered the world and how, God, we have just, ever since that point, have been confused as to really what is all glorious. And ever since then, Father, our hearts go out after all sorts of other gods and idols and concepts and pictures and perspectives we turn our backs on you. So Father, I pray right now that you would just help our eyes just to see you, help our ears to hear you, and that these words that we're going to read right now would not just be uh, merely fairy tale or folklore or pithy statements. But God, I pray that they would be the words of life coming off the pages of your word into our hearts, opening our eyes, transforming our understanding of who you are 
and what your real true plan is upon this planet. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, verse 1, says this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be any more mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated upon the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son and daughter. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then came one of the seven angels who had, seven, who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues. He spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride and the wife and the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to the great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, had a great high wall with 12 gates, and its gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, those gates. On the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates. And the city lies four square its length, uh, the same as its width, and, the measure, and he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia, its length, its width, height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, as a human measurement, which also is an angel's measurement. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, then sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city had no need for sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light. And its, lamb, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, all the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city. Also, there on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will need no lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What I want to basically talk about here today as we look at this, one of the elements that gets pointed out through the text is John writes about things that will be new. He says that there's a voice that he hears that says, in essence, behold, I make all things new. That part of God's plan, part of God's deal is to make all things new. It's, um, one of the things I really want all of us to really kind of 
understand and comprehend is that really this sort of runs to the core of who we are. There's something about new things that, that really just, you know, appeals to us. We're all about new things. I mean, we like 2.0s, 3.0s. We like upgrades, right? I mean, most of you guys know this past week, you know, iPhone 4 came out. Some of you bought it, I know, because I, I, I coveted. And, and the reality is that, that we, we like new things. We want new things. There's just something about things that are new that cause us to just, we, we got to get it. And here's the funny thing is, is that things that we might even have for just a couple weeks that were new at one point, they've got a very, very limited shelf life. They don't last very long. And within some very short period of time, maybe sometimes two weeks, maybe sometimes a couple months, they're already old again because something new has come out to replace it. So therefore, we kind of start this whole cycle again. We're like, I need to raise more money. I need to work more hours because I got to get that new thing, new album, new car, new room addition, new skirt, new shoes, new shoelaces, whatever the case is, we're always looking for something new. It's just reality. It's the way that we live. I think the reason for that is because something in our heart cries out for that. We want new stuff. We're just longing for that because somewhere in the core of who we are, maybe there's an echo of some sort of distant concept that's been long gone But God is always new. God is new. God, naturally, whatever he touches, whatever he he involves himself in, it becomes renewed. It becomes new. It becomes brand new. When God touches sinful people's hearts, he makes them new. When God shows up in a city, it becomes new. When Jesus comes and makes a covenant, it's a new covenant. God is into making things new. Our culture, the way that we've worked as a society, we've recognized this. And unfortunately, what's ultimately happened throughout history is we've made attempts, various attempts, at trying to make things new, to bring about cultural renewal, to bring about social reform or renewal, to bring about various ends of certain types of sinful habits. We don't call them sinful habits, we just call them bad deeds, call them evil, we'll call them whatever we want, but, but the reality is we're always trying hard to bring about something to bring about change. And the reality is, even though we vote somebody in, we realize if they don't work fast enough, then we want something new or somebody new. If a law gets passed, we don't like it, we want a new law. You guys get the idea? It's just the way that we are. And the point of the matter is, is that God is actually already working on a plan to renew all things. Before we jump in, I want to basically give you guys four ways to view history. And I think it's important to kind of have a a grasp or understanding by one of the ways in which we view history, because really all of us kind of fit into one of these perspectives. All of us have one of these lenses by which we view the world around us. I'm going to give you basically four of them. It can be summarized in these ways. The first one is evolutionary. In other words, progressive, not Darwinian evolution, but the idea of progressive. It's moving forward. It's advancing. It's the idea that this generation, we know a lot better than the former generation. We do things better than the former generation. In fact, we don't even need the older generation because we have better insights, better education, better understanding, better people, better systems, better structure, better culture. And one of the chief predominant sins of the concept of evolution or evolutionary progressive uh, format of viewing the world is pride. We have this tendency or propensity to look at other cultures, other distant nations or other distant people even on the scale of history and say, we know better. And there is a propensity of becoming very prideful. So when somebody within a system fights against it and says, you know, I don't think this is really working. I don't think this law is going to be helpful. I don't think the system's going to be beneficial to the people. Well, there's obviously some sort of marginalization. People are kicked out. People are voted out. People are smeared. Their names get destroyed in the public. And that's basically what ends up happening. And so what's ultimately taken place, I think, as a result of this, during the time of, you know, what we identify as sort of modernism or the age of enlightenment, is that humanism kind of began to get kick-started. Uh, Man began to realize that if we think a lot, if we put our minds to good work, we can create things like electricity or harness electricity and create things like light bulbs so we can have light at night. We work really hard. We can somehow maybe even invent a toaster or a toaster oven or something. You know, something to wash our clothes. We can invent a car, something to maybe drive a little bit faster than a horse. We can advance. And sort of the illusion is this, is that we live in this mindset that we are a better 
culture than other cultures. And in some ways, there's a lot of truth to that. In some ways, the advances of technology have aided us. I mean, after all, we can cook a hot pocket a lot faster than we did 50 years ago because we've got microwaves, all right? But the reality is, is that we don't really find ourselves advancing that much because all you got to do is look at the news and you begin to realize that even though we've been able to advance in certain ways of cultural conditions and structures and systems in terms of society, we've also advanced in terms of ways of killing people. We know how to kill out massive cities with one bomb. It's over. Biological warfare, we know how to basically destroy people faster, quicker than ever before. In a lot of ways, this is not advancing. This is, you know, regress. This is not moving forward. In a lot of ways, this is sort of not evolution. It's de-evolution. It's moving backwards. And the reality is, is that evolutionary concept of progress, we're not really any better than we were. We just have some better ways to help ourselves think that things are a little bit better. We end up dying. And if anything, we just prolong our lives. And by prolonging our lives, we actually just continue to prolong our suffering. The second way of viewing this is sort of cyclical. This is the way that most cultures and religions have oftentimes throughout history viewed things. It's the idea that things just keep being on this constant uh, repetition, sort of like this cycle. It's why one of the major world religions, many of the major world religions um, have little circles. They have little worship circles. They've got, you know, things that are sort of cyclical. It's the idea of you're in this cycle. It's the idea of karma. You just keep going around and around in this cycle. It's like in a cul-de-sac. You keep driving around or you're on this treadmill. No matter how hard you work, how hard you move, the goal is to just try to get off of that treadmill and if by some sort of act of miracle or by good, hard, strong works, you can maybe break the cycle and get off of the treadmill. And therefore, when you die, rather than coming back as a used car salesman, you come back as like protozoa. And that's about it. It's about as best as you can just hope things to get better for you. But the reality is, again, this is a, a perspective that oftentimes people have that there's just this constant, endless cycle of repetition just keeps going on and on and on without really ever any progress. Sometimes you might progress as a culture, as a society, but then you regress for another handful of generations and progress again and again, kick back and just keeps going and going and going. So a third way, it's just pure randomness. I would say in a lot of ways that this is the culture and the lens by which our culture and our society views things. Things are just sort of random. We don't really know exactly why we're here, where we're going, what life is all about, but the reality is, is that if you've got the goods, if you've got the means, if you've got the abilities, then you might as well just live it up and enjoy it. You know, remember when Paul, the apostle, went to Athens? He went to this particular place called Mars Hill. And when he had ascended in this particular area, there's this large group of people that were talking. One of the groups of people that he addressed uh, was uh, a group of people called the Epicureans. And this is sort of the mentality that the Epicureans had. Um, oftentimes Epicureans get viewed as being hedonistic, meaning they just indulge themselves in the life around them. But the reason why they indulge themselves in the life around them is because they sort of have this, this philosophic idea of the world around them. That everything's just sort of random. If there was a God, we certainly don't know him. If there was a God who created all things, he's definitely not here. He made the world and he's split. He's no longer here. Everything is just sort of given over to randomness. Uh, earthquakes happen just because, uh, tsunamis happen, people die because they built their house too close to the water, it's their fault, should have done that. Um, all sorts of things just sort of happened by randomness. And so the typical mentality that kind of arises out of this is that if you've got goods, I mean, think about it this way. If you're an aristocrat living first century, Epicureanism uh, was, was wonderful because it basically it was your license to have as much sex as you want, to eat as much food as you want, to drink as much wine as you want, to spend as much money as you want, to buy as much land as you want, to control as many slaves as you want, because at the end of the day, if you're gonna die, if everything's futile, if everything's gonna break down, if everything is just randomness, pure randomness, you might as well go down grabbing as much as you can and have some enjoyment by the way. Here's the problem, and it's still really the problem today, is that not everybody has a lot of money. I mean, a lot of people kind of find themselves in sort of a difficult place in life. I mean, in other words, if you're just sort of the average Joe that kind of works a minimum wage job, you've got a horrible subcompact car that barely starts up periodic, you have to live in a trailer park, your girlfriend's ugly, you don't have any education, you're barely literate, and you play video games all day long. I mean, if that's all that you have in life, I mean, you can't even, you can't even apply for any types of Medicaid or anything like that. Your life is just horrible, and you don't have any means of getting out of that and everything's just random, I mean, you might as well just die. You might as well just commit suicide. 
drink the poison hemlock, end it. All right, that's just, that's the mentality. So it either leads to fatalism or materialism. That's the idea of randomness. In a lot of ways, that's the way our world lives. And that's, I think, personally, one of the reasons why our culture and 21st century America is probably one of the, the most medicated nations in the world. And, and I, again, you know, again, I, I realize there are certain circumstances where people need medication. We just talked about that. My good friend who's going through this situation right now absolutely needs help in these particular areas. But the reality is, is aside from chemical imbalances, aside from other certain things that may be going on in the physicality of a human being, maybe some of the reasons why there's so much depression, so much just, you know, despair is because of bad theology, I mean, it simply boils down to that. Maybe one of the reasons why there is so much despair in the world in which we live in is because we have a lens by which we're viewing the world and history around us in a way that just removes God. And there's nothing but despair or materialism. The fourth way is this. is to basically view things in terms of biblical perspective. And what I mean by that is that God is in the place of working through all things, involving himself in creation. And on the work, part of this is he enters into his world in which he created and is seeking to bring about restoration. And just like we had just read, there comes a day, there will come a day that history is sort of this line. It starts from God. It goes throughout all history. Yes, there's ups. Yes, there's down. Yes, there's moments of progress. Yes, there's moments of regress. But all of it's going somewhere. It's going back to Jesus, going back to God, because ultimately that's the story of the Bible, that God sent his son into the world, into our system, into human flesh and bone, took upon our life, took upon our shame, felt our pain, cried our tears, felt all the things that we feel, yet was without sin, ultimately died on the cross, not only felt all that mankind would offer him, but also took upon himself the wrath of God, took upon himself our penalty, was sought to bring about our redemption. And like we had just read, there will come a day when Jesus will make all things right. That's the beauty of this. So I want you to think about it in those terms. There's, there's four, at least four ways, and again, I know this is kind of broad striking, but at least those four ways of viewing that. So what I want to do now is I want you to just understand that as we begin to look at this, God is interested in making things new. We're going to take a look at basically three things that God makes new in chapter 21. The first thing we're going to take a look at is he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we're going to see he creates a new people of God. And thirdly, a new city or the new Jerusalem as it's defined. So the first thing is this. The new heaven is what we're going to look at. The new heaven. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says this. And then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I'm going to pause right here and just say something like, when I was a brand new Christian, I was probably about 18, 17 years old, somewhere around there. I remember reading this passage. I grew up in Huntington Beach. I started surfing like when I was age 13. Took a bus to the beach all the time. I was the guy like on the bus first time in the morning at 5.30. Surfboard hanging there. Back in the days, you just had to hold it in front of you. Everybody hated getting on the bus because there was no place to sit. And that, that, I remember reading this for the first time. I was a brand new Christian. It said, no more sea. I was like, what? No sea? And this heaven? You gotta have an ocean. There's gotta be waves. There's gotta be something, right? To ride. I mean, that, that's, I can't imagine that being heaven. And the reality is, is this. I, I think what John is talking about here is not so much the fact that there's not an ocean. Here's why. There's something beautiful about the ocean. There's something that speaks forth the glory and the beauty and the greatness of God. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people are just simply drawn to the ocean. We're drawn by this like unbridled power and strength and might of the waves. There's just something about that that grabs our attention. Even if you're not a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you look at the ocean, you're like, gosh, God is amazing. He can create such huge waves, that God has such great power, that he basically says to the waves, stop right here and don't go any further. And God just has this ability of just glorifying himself through the waves. And I just remember hearing that and just being in trouble. Like, how can there be no ocean in heaven, no sea in heaven? Some scholars say that maybe it's a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe God's going to change the geolo ge uh, geologic uh, patterns or makeup of the earth back in that day. The Mediterranean Sea won't be there anymore. I don't know, maybe. Um, but the other thing that I heard that I kind of actually like the interpretation a little bit better is that the concept of the sea in first century uh, Jews 
was this idea of great trouble. It was out of the sea in the prophecies of Daniel that these great beasts had arisen. And also out of the book of Revelation, these great beasts arise out of the sea. Um, The sea is also sort of this picture of something fearful and scary. It's powerful. It was very mysterious. People didn't understand the sea. There's something uh, really to be feared about the sea. And I think this is, there's something even a little bit deeper going on in the gospel accounts when Jesus says to his disciples, like, we're going to go to the other side. And what does he do? He takes a nap. Right? And all of a sudden, th- these, his disciples wake up, they're freaking out, they're, they're absolutely convinced they're going to go down and die. And Jesus is like, why are you guys tr- waking me up from my nap? He's all, be still. And all of a sudden, the sea is stilled. And they're like, he must be God. Why? Because Jesus, I mean, if Jesus has the power to calm this fearful, powerful, profoundly scary sea, it must be powerful, it must be something more than what we can imagine. I think the idea of no more sea is the fact that the dangerous aspect of the sea, the evil that the sea was associated with, the wickedness that the sea sort of brought concepts to mind, the metaphor of the sea and what it all stood for in terms of wickedness, evil, uh, just, just blatant sin, it's not going to be anymore. It won't be associated with that anymore. That God will make all things new. So we see that there's a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 2 says, and I saw the holy city come down. And uh, we'll look at that in just a second here. But the first thing I want you to notice, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, I want you guys to turn there real quick. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read this verse uh, real quickly here. Romans 8, verse 19. He says this, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of, to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning, groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So here's what basically Paul's saying, is that the earth we live in right now, it's kind of bummed. I mean, the, the, the universe as we know it is, is just under this curse, under this weight of bondage or of sin or curse. Uh, it's been subjected to that. And yet, it's as if it's crying out to be set free. But the freedom that will one day be granted to or given to all of creation, the world in which we live in, and if you're like, really? Is the earth really that messed up? Look, all you got to do is go out and mow your lawn. All right? You mow your lawn. You dig out the weeds that are in your flower bed or your garden, whatever it is. I guarantee you, come back in three days and little weeds that you pulled out are actually, if you listen carefully, they will mock you. They will shout at you, and they will say, see me? I'm back. I'm back. All right? That's what they will say. They will look at you. They will mock you to your face because creation pushes back. It kicks back. We we can't be controlled. It can't be harnessed. It's one of the reasons why God said uh, when Adam fell, now your work will actually be labor. There is a difference between work and labor. Work, I think there's there's a glorious a redeemed way in which we will be working for God. But labor, we shouldn't be laboring for God. Labor is the idea where you're sweating and it's hard and it's toilsome and it's full of difficulty and it's just, you just want to throw in a towel and quit. And there's something about tilling the soil and working hard on this planet that is constantly being pushed back upon us by creation. It's constantly resisting us. It's fighting us. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, uh, we've, you know, my, my wife and I, we've kind of lived in a lot of different houses. There was a season. Uh, in fact, I think this might be one of the longest times we've lived in a house. We were living in a house just for like every two and a half years we're having to move. It's chaotic, especially when the market was really good and everybody's buying houses. We moved into a house. We're like, oh, we're going to sell it again. You're like, oh, this is horrible. And so we kind of moved around a lot. And this most recent house we moved into, I told myself, I don't want to buy a plant. I don't want to buy anything. I don't want to plant anything. I'm just tired of making somebody's house look nice and then move. I'm just tired of it. Drop it on my, on my, on my money. So I'm like, I'm not going to plant anything. And so about, about four or five months ago, I kind of broke my own rule. I'm like, you know what? We've been here for a little over three, three and a half years. I think I'll, I'll plant a tree. I was at Costco, and I saw these you know, apricot trees for like 12 bucks. I'm like, I don't buy an apricot tree. I like apricots, so I'm going to plant it. So I went to my backyard, 
And I, and, I, and I dug a big hole, and I bought the right type of soil, and I planted it down there. And later on that night, I was sitting down with my family. We were eating dinner at the table. And I turned back, and I'm like, hey, check it out. I planted the apricot tree. Like, as a surprise for you guys. I want you to check it out. So I opened the window, and they looked at it, and they're like, where's it at, Dad? And I'm like, see, it's like, are you kidding? It's about three feet tall. You can't see it? And I, look, I turn around, and I look, and I see this little stick about this tall standing out of the ground, and it was all frayed at the top. My dog had literally chewed on it. It was gone. My tree was gone. It was absolutely destroyed. My dog rebelled. Rebelled against Jesus, against me. It was horrible. I was really frustrated. That's creation pushing back, kicking back. All things are in turmoil. All things are constantly fighting back. And one day, it will all be set free. One day, it will all be set free. The, the, the weeds by which we wrestle with, the things that we find ourselves fighting against. You know this, especially if you're parents. You raise your kids. Everybody loves their kids, especially when they're first born. You're just like, these are amazing. But then you begin to realize, as you begin to train them and raise them, there's this natural proclivity just to push back and fight, to constantly ask questions like, why? Or say, no. Or challenge. And it's part of that nature of just inside of us pushing back fighting back, wanting to establish our own limits, establish our own terrain, and fight the system. And the reality is, is that concept has infected and affected all of creation. All of creation. And one day, God will make it all right. Heavens and earth will be made new. Heavens and earth will be brand new. And Paul says, they will follow the same order as what began in redeemed sons and daughters. Let me put it this way. If you're a Christian here, you know what God did in your life. He opened your eyes. He allowed you to see that one day you were once in bondage to the things of this world. You were a slave to them. That's why Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. You can't get out of it. You are a bonded. You're in bondage. You are a slave to that particular sin. And unless... A deliverer comes and delivers you and sets you free. Like Moses set the children of Israel free. It was difficult. It was hard. It was laborious. But it was a part of the ultimate plan of redemption of God. And unless somebody comes and sets you free, then you're not free indeed. Jesus said, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And the reality is, that's what began that. So you were made in the likeness of Christ. Jesus came as a human being, died, went into the ground like a seed, Jesus said, before a seed can begin to bear forth fruit. It's got to die in the ground, in the soil, but then it will one day bear forth fruit. It will rise up. Jesus says, I will die. I will rise again. So you will die. You will rise again. And Paul's saying, all creation will die, and it too will rise again. In the same way, following the same fashion, the same manner as the sons and daughters of God, who follow him. So we see, first of all, that there will be a new heavens, a new earth. I want to read this passage to you again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. It says this, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live in him, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord? Because in which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting, as he says, a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what Peter is even adding to or pointing out is saying that there will come a day that prior to this moment where God will make all things new, all things will just burn. The first century imagery of fire is not just simply destructive, but uh, it's full of purification. Fire purifies just as much as it destroys. It all boils down to what type of substance something is made out of, Right? And so I think the point of fire here is to point out there's a lot of stuff on this earth, in this earth, part of the system of this earth, that will be destroyed. But God will also ultimately bring forth that which is good, and it will be redeemed. There is a plan of restoration that God is bringing about. The Christian church has done a good job, in my opinion, pointing out creation, pointing out fall, pointing out, about, pointing out redemption, that Jesus came to redeem all things. One of the things that oftentimes we forget is the fact that he will restore all things. So not only is the whole plan God coming and saving us from sin, he will do that, he has done that through Jesus on the cross, but God's ultimate plan is after the redemption, is restoration. 
he will restore all things. History, guys, is going somewhere. It's not on a treadmill. It's not in a cul-de-sac. It's not trying to figure out some way to break out of this horrible cycle. It's being led by Jesus to a place that's glorious. And those who follow him, those who know him, those who've been set free by him, have this glorious, beautiful moment one day which will be revealed to them, as he points out. And all the earth will be a partaker of this whole thing. All of God's creation. That's why one of the words that we might even describe it as is God's restorative process will be cosmic. Meaning, all of the cosmos, all of the created things that God had made will be brought under this place of restoration through Jesus' renewing work. The second thing I want to point out is that there will also be the new people of God. I'm going to jump to a particular passage in Isaiah chapter 66. Um, I think it's here in the bottom. I'll read it right there. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offering and your name remain. All flesh will come and worship before me, declares the Lord. So God points out this time through Isaiah that there will be a moment when God will restore all things. It will be like a new heavens and a new earth. But part of this restoration is that um, all beings, all creatures will then worship God. They will be brought into a place where they will identify God for his greatness and they will worship him and they will honor him rightly, properly. They will worship him the way they ought to be worshiping God. Here's a point that I want to make. This is sort of the big idea of the text I think is trying to be conveyed. It's this. The reality is, is that all of us in this world are all worshipers. All of us. You might even be someone that's like, I'm not religious. I don't go to church. I don't believe in God. You might even be someone like, I'm an atheist. But the reality is, is every human being worships. That's the point. All of us are worshipers. And the reality is, is what God is doing, part of this restorative process, is one day he will bring about the place and the presence where he will be there and we will actually worship him properly. And here's what I mean. Part of the problem, part of the reason why sin is so damning and so destructive is not just because of its actions. I mean, sin is oftentimes doing things. It's identified as sins of commission, meaning committing something, doing something evil, hurting somebody's feelings, stealing something, lusting after somebody who's not your spouse. It is sins of commission. It's also sins of omission, meaning we don't do certain things that we ought to be doing. But at the core, at the root of all of that action of commission or inaction of omission is idolatry. It's a worship issue. Everything in our lives can be traced back to a worship issue. Things that have to do with sinfulness, things that have to do with breakdown, things that have to do with brokenness in our lives, tears that we cry, death that's oftentimes there, oftentimes can always, be, really can be traced back to some sort of a worship issue. Either we have not worshiped God rightly and we brought pain and hurt and injury upon ourselves or somebody else in our lives did not worship God properly and their sin of activity or inactivity brought about pain and destruction and hurt in my life. Let me tell you, tell you exactly what I mean. The real issue that's at heart, uh, John Calvin, one of the great reformers, basically described it like this. He says, our hearts are really a factory of idols. Meaning we constantly are looking for something new to value by which we can now devote ourselves to, we can devote our energy to, our strength, our worship, our money. And really at the end of the day, those idols in our lives are things that we value with all of our strength and might. We worship them. It's really a worship issue. Here's a couple examples of some random types of idols. It could be a spouse, it could be a job, it could be a job performance, it could be a hobby, it can be season tickets, it could be your dog, it can be your child, it could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your house, the type of car you drive, the type of clothes that you wear. You get the idea? We are worshipers. We place value on things that really are not self-renewing. They have shelf lives. They die. They break down. They rust and they corrode. And we find ourselves oftentimes looking for something new to, to devote ourselves to. And really at the end of the day, that which we worship in our lives is what we will devote ourselves to most generously, most faithfully. 
This is one of the reasons why, say for example, a man who loves his career, because somewhere in his career, he has sort of found his identity. His identity is somehow inextricably linked to who his career is or what his career is. In other words, the more he succeeds, the more strokes he gets, the more affirmation he gets, maybe that he never got from his dad, whatever the case is, but he wants to find it through his career. So he works hard, he devotes himself, and he sacrifices everything else. This is why the wife asks questions. I feel like you're always just devoting yourself to your job more than me. It's because he is. He's sacrificing you. His career is his life. It's his savior. It's what will bring him into heaven. It's what will bring him identity. His identity is locked in that. And if you fight that, if you resist that, if you challenge that, one of the things that you discover, one of the best ways to identify idols is the moment you begin to turn your back on them or confront them or challenge them, idols get ticked off fast. And they resist and they hate, and they become angry and bitter. This is why, say for example, I'll give you another example. Uh, if somebody is full of rage, they've got this sort of this temper that just flares up and they're angry, perhaps the idol in their lives is themselves. They value themselves above and beyond anybody else, anything else. They demand respect, they demand worship, they demand honor, they want people to acknowledge them. And guess what, when people don't acknowledge them, when people, don't, when people cut them off in line or they're driving down the street, they get cut off, something happens, their idol has been offended. It's as if somebody flipped off their idol and they're very angry. Nobody puts down my idol. And they get angry. They get upset. And they fight back and push back. That's what idolatry does. It destroys relationships. But we will give ourselves to, most passionately, whatever it is that we value most completely. Does that make sense? This is why the issue, why God starts off the Ten Commandments by basically saying, you shall have no other God besides me. Because we always are. That's the problem. That's why there's sin in this world. That's why social reform cannot be just because we've got better education. That's why transformation in a culture and a society cannot be just simply in, inflicting stronger, stricter rules because the issue goes deeper into the heart in terms of what we worship, in terms of what we value. And so the, what God does as part of this future state is he will pull back the veil and we will see Jesus clearly. We will not be tempted to worship any false gods. Our hearts will be devoted purely to him. We won't be constantly living in the state of rival thrones, of passions rivaling our hearts, or constantly begging or pulling us to worship God, and yet sometimes calling us to God after these other things. Do you know that Paul the Apostle identifies it this way? He says the reality is this, is that behind every idol is a demon, Satan. He never unveils himself. He always, can, he always hides himself he, because he's a liar. He wants us to think that really all I'm simply doing is I'm just working hard. I want a good job. I want to make some good money because I want to be able to be free. The more money I get, the more free I'm going to really get. That's a lie. That's exactly what the demon behind the idolatrous act wants you to believe because he knows if he can get you to believe that, then you will turn your back on God and then you will pursue this other idol and in reality, you find yourself bound. But on the contrary, people who see Jesus as Lord and serve him and follow him are actually free. Food is not our God. Money's not our God. You guys, ask somebody who's devoted themselves their life to money. Are they free? Are they free to just give joyfully away? Are they free to just throw money out left and right, helping people that are impoverished and poor and marginalized and hurting? Are they free to do that? Ask a glutton who's, you know, watch you know, The Biggest Loser, all right? Ask one of those people, are you free to go on a trampoline and hang out with your kid? Are you free to just jog in a marathon? Are you free to put on that pair of pants you wore when you are 18 years old? Are you really free? You're not free. I mean, ask somebody who's just bound by consumerism. Are you really free? Are you free to just hang out with your kids and throw a baseball with them and spend time with them? Are you really free? There's no freedom because idols control 
and they're a horrible taskmaster, Jesus frees. Jesus sets our hearts free. This is why Christians in the early church, when they discovered Jesus as Lord, and money wasn't, they can gather together and find out who has needs in the church, and they would actually take their money and throw it away, just give it away, because to them, it's just all going to burn, just like Peter says. It may be useful to some degree, of course, pays my bills, buys me food, but food's not my God, Jesus is. Money's not my God, Jesus is. Ownership isn't my God, Jesus is. Everything else is now free to be used at Jesus' disposal to bless, encourage, help, aid anybody who's in need. And the Bible basically is pointing out here that there will come a day when Jesus will set us free and there will be this clear understanding that we'll be a new creation, new people made in the image of God. Listen to a couple of verses real quick and we'll wrap this up. Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 uh, says this. He put on the new self, he says, uh, actually, an exhortation, put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And a point that I think Paul is basically saying is that in God, you are a new person, new self. Here's what God has done. He's taken our old hearts that were devoted to and in love with other things that were basically had this expiration date on. Do you know that? Everything in this life, we already talked about that. That's, that's why there's always new upgrades coming out because the moment, you know, iPhone 4.0 comes out, it's got an expiration date. Because in another year, everybody knows Apple's going to come out with another one. Everybody knows that. So the reality is, is that everything has its expiration date. And that's why Peter basically says, you guys just got to understand, everything one day will burn. Everything has an expiration date. Everything has a shelf life attached to it. So if we can somehow get into our mind that everything in this world is nothing more than kindling that is one day waiting for King Jesus to set the fire to. It'll be one big bonfire. And those who love Jesus will be like, it's okay, I got the greatest prize of all, Jesus. And others who are watching their whole life literally go up in smoke will weep. One of the best, surest tests to determine whether or not we're idolatrous or not is by asking yourself, what are those things in your life that you are completely devoted to that your identity is bound up in, and should it be taken away? Should it die? Should it pass away? Should it move on? Should it be gone? Should it vanish? How would you respond? If it's just a good thing, you'll be sad, you'll be bummed, you'll be hurt. But if it's a God thing, your life will be devastated. You'll feel like dying. You feel like ending your life, you can't go on. Good things, elevated to God things, become very evil things quickly. God created us to be worshipers of himself and conformed into his image. And this is exactly why Paul basically makes a statement. He says, put on a new self, created after the image and the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And I think the point that Paul is basically saying here is as you put on the true likeness of God, this picture, this image, this beauty, the purity of God, you'll become like God in righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those words in a lot of ways is very disconnected with our culture. Uh, if you've grown up in churches, uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those words that gets hijacked by very religious people, and they use it, and they contort it, and they turn it into this big list of saying, righteousness means wearing a certain type of clothes. Righteousness means only listening to Christian music. Righteousness means making sure you have a Thomas Kincaid painting. Righteousness means making sure you have Christian t-shirts. Righteousness means whatever. And you, you can go down this list, and if you break anything on that list, you'll be sure to be pointed out because you are now a heretic. You broke the list. I'd like for you to think about what righteousness is in a different way. If righteousness really is not a list, righteousness is a person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is righteous. And when we fix our minds and our eyes and our understanding upon who Jesus is, my greatest desire for you is that you would not be religious, but that you would be righteous. That you would be like Jesus. And in being like Jesus, you will become God-like. You will be like God, loving, pure, holy people who love one another, who serve one another when there's needs in the body of Christ, rather than moving away and running away and closing our eyes and not wanting to hear, we actually run to, we absorb 
others hurting into our midst to save and help and love and cherish and bind, take care of. That's what God is. And God will one day renew a new people after his image, after his likeness, and it'll be glorious. And he basically makes a statement. He says, all the things that were associated with the former way of life on this earth will be done away with. That's why he says there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain, no more hardship, no more difficulty in that particular sense, the way we've associated and understood difficulty or death. And then he gives another list in verse eight. He talks about those who are full of cowardice and faithless and detestable and murderous and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, they won't have any part of God's kingdom. And the reason why these things, I think, are interconnected is because obviously those things that have to do with sinful practices do bring about pain. A woman who's raped does feel great sorrow and pain and defilement in her body and in her soul. A child who's been molested feels horrible. And he's saying that there will come a day when all of this will be no longer, will be no more. In fact, it even goes so far as to say that God himself will actually, by his own finger, the very finger which carved into the two tablets of stone, the law, will wipe away your tears. That's how great our God is. That's what God is moving all things forward to. There is a trajectory, and it's moving forward to this great and glorious day in which we will be with God. Those who know God, those who love God will be with him. And those who have consistently turned their backs on God and fallen away from God or desire nothing to do with God, they will continue to just, they will have a place, but God says their place will not be a natural place. It will be the place where Satan and his demons are sent. I mean, you got to understand this. I mean, we can look at this, and this is, some people, this is one of the biggest arguments that people level against Christianity, is they oftentimes shout how scandalous it is for God to actually send people or consign people or cause people to be depart, to part away from him into this place the lake of fire burning with sulfur and brimstone. But just are frustrating. Can't understand that thing. It's scandalous. But the reality is, is that all of us who think that and have locks on our doors or alarms on our cars or have a watchdog are actually hypocrites. Because reality is, is none of us will just open the door of our house to anybody, do we? None of us. I mean, imagine Thanksgiving Day. Would you open your door to any scandalous, weird, nut job, thief, pervert into your house and have dinner with them? Probably not. They're not welcome in your house. Why? Because they may pose a threat against your family and your loved ones. It's your house. In the same way, why is it so scandalous for God to say, no, my house will be a house that's protected, that's full of righteousness, full of life, full of life-giving people who have their hearts and minds washed and cleansed to follow me? That's the picture The real scandal is not that God would dismiss some people, but the real scandal is that God would accept any. That's the real scandal. And that's the future that we have looking forward to us, is that one day God will restore all things, new heavens, new earth, new people of God, and a new city. The city, I'm not even going to read it. You guys can read it on your own. I've already read through it, but the picture is just glorious. It's beautiful. It's a picture of a new society under God's reign where God is king. God's people will serve him and be with him. And I love the picture, and I'll finish with this thought, is in the center of that city, that new society, that new place, no temple, no place where you go to, no sacred space, no sacred place, no temple, because God will be everywhere. There's an amazing verse in the book of Habakkuk, and it says, As surely as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God cover the earth. There's another verse in the Old Testament. It describes there will come a day when God will gather together his people, and it says he will rejoice over them with loud singing. Can you imagine that? What the picture must be like in this day of renewed heaven, renewed earth, renewed people of God, renewed city, singing renewed songs to a great and mighty king. And at the end of that supper, 
God himself will stand up and rejoice over his children with loud singing. I promise you, Calvary Sloan, you follow Christ, you will be there. God will wipe away the tears of shame, the tears of pain, the tears of defilement. Jesus said it once, it is finished. The price of sin has been paid. God will say it again in the end. It, all things will become new. And he will say it and declare it and it will be. I hope you understand who you worship. I hope and pray that this concept, this picture, this idea of what you worship, you take this seriously your entire life, your entire destiny, your entire future is affected by it. Who do you worship today? Who do you, what do you call God? What do you devote your time, energy, talents, treasure, money, attention, affection to? Whatever that is, that's your God. That's your God. Your God will either destroy you and leave you because they'll be extinguished. There's an expiration date somewhere on there. If it's the God of heaven and earth who's infinite and almighty and all-powerful, he will never let you go, never let you down. Instead, he will make all things new. I hope you know this, God. We're gonna respond, we're gonna sing, and Evan, come on up and lead us in some worship. What I want for us to do right now is I want us to think about and worship and consider the beauty of Christ. Consider what you worship in your life right now. Consider what you devote yourself to. What you give yourself to, your time to, your treasure to, your, all that you are to. And if it's not Jesus, I encourage you, I invite you, I welcome you to confess your sin, to confess false worship to God. Confess it to him. Ask him to wash you and cleanse you. All of us have been idolaters. Christians are not perfect. We still tamper with idolatry. This is why John, the beloved apostle who wrote this great book, the very end, basically said, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. The propensity and the proclivity is still there. That's the most frustrating thing for me personally as a child of God is my heart's always divided. Always. I'm always wrestling with what treasure will I devote my time, energy, talents, and money to. But one day, my heart and soul and mind will be singular upon God alone. God will be in the midst of the city in the midst of all, and he will be our light, and we will worship him, and we will love him and serve him purely the way that we were intended to. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna respond. We'll partake of communion as we partake of communion. One of the things I encourage you guys to think about is Jesus gave this meal, and he did it so in two ways. One, he wanted us to always look back and remember what he did for us on the cross. But it's a meal that also points forward and he talks about how each time you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. It's the picture that one day Jesus will come again and we will sit down and we will be in heaven with him in his presence and we will enjoy a meal with King Jesus. We will sit with King Jesus and have a meal with him. So as you partake of the bread and drink the cup, I want you to remember the fact, the reason why one day you will sit with King Jesus and have a meal with him is because of the cross which he laid his life down and died for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust in Christ today, to confess your sin to him, to ask him to wash you, to cleanse you, to purify your heart, and he'll wash you. We're gonna give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us to give back joyfully. If you're part of this church, you call this your family, your home, you can give back joyfully because you love Jesus. And you want to be generous just like God's a generous giver himself. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll worship. If you're here and you got your kids in children's ministry, 
please, if you could get a chance, just you know, go relieve the people that are working really hard. You can bring your kids in here if you want. Just make sure that, you, know, you, you know, are able to lovingly guide them and lead them if they get a little bit rambunctious. It's fine. Um, just, you know, you're in charge now. Um, and I invite you to bring them in, have communion with them, partake, worship Jesus together with them. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll give. Partake of communion. Confess sin. And exalt Jesus. Jesus, thank you that one day you will come and rule and reign as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. You will make all things new. God, thank you even right now in this room there are people that are the first fruits of that and they have new hearts. You've taken their old desires and loved and worshipped false gods and were devoted to those things and held them bound and bondage by those things. You set them free. Now their hearts love you and serve you. It's only a work that you can do. So Father, we pray right now that you be exalted and glorified in our time. Let our song raise to you because you're a good God.